The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Donald Trump goes to Davos. Investing bigwig Larry Fink wants companies to do right by society, and Ford's stock market lead over General Motors makes no sense. These are the topics we'll be discussing on this week's edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and with me is my co-host, Jennifer Sabre. Hi, Jen. Hi, Anthony. The World Economic Forum is gearing up to hold its annual four-day summit in Davos starting on January the 23rd. Over the four-day confab, the Swiss ski resort attracts world leaders and corporate chieftains. And this year, they're gathering to discuss the hot topic of a fractured global society. President Donald Trump will also be making the journey. And joining me on the line from Mumbai to discuss the upcoming Winter Summit, Trump's role in it and what else may happen, is Breaking Views Associate Editor Una Galani. Welcome to the show, Una. Anthony, thanks. So, Una, first, just just go through, tell us about the ethos and, and general vibe of Davos for, for those listeners who've not yet been uh, subjected to all the media about it over the years. That's a great place to start, Nia. This is essentially an annual orgy of millionaires and billionaires, you know, politicians, financiers, company bosses, etc. You know, that essentially offers us a world, you know, a snapshot of what the elite are really thinking. And, you know, around the endless panel discussions about artificial intelligence and the plight of women and how to solve Poverty, there are private meetings and parties that take place in the surrounding hotels and bars from like 7 a.m. to, well, you know, 7 a.m. But it all happens so fast and in such a small place that it's kind of like an echo chamber, you know, of like the really rich and the really powerful. And often, you know, they just seem slightly out of touch with reality. And of course, you know, these days, the Davos consensus that comes out of this summit is as famous for what it gets right as for what it gets wrong. I mean, you're right about being an echo chamber. I mean, it is, it is odd. I mean, just the way you describe it, it sounds like, I suppose, what everyone imagines a, um, a billionaire's life to be like, nothing but, but, but parties and, and, well, parties. Um, but at the heart of it, I mean, the idea behind Davos is that it attracts globalists, which is why it's so funny to see that, you know, Donald Trump is going to be going there, despite, you know, being the man who, in his uh, inauguration speech last year, pitched the idea of America first. And he's rejected so many of the of the goals of, of the conference. So you know, how does this all fit together, do you think? You know, Trump is the perfect example of the Davos consensus getting it wrong. You know, like, let's like rewind a couple of years. No gun predicted that Trump would be elected. And, you know, once he was elected, everyone very wrongly thought that he would be a very measured president, and, you know, well, we've seen what we've seen. Um, I think that's one reason why Trump going to Davos is just so interesting to so many people. I mean, he he also, like, all of his policies, right, they they don't really fit with the Davos ethos, you know, policies on immigration, his fondness for tearing up global agreements on everything, I don't know, from trade to climate change. He's the antithesis of the classic Davos man. And the classic Davos man, Anthony, as you know, is, you know, someone who's really committed to this spirit of global cooperation and who looks beyond borders and national identity. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm just looking at the the, the list of 
of risks that um, those others who are going to Davos see. And, and again, it's, it's things like climate change and water scarcity at the top of the list again, which is you know, these are ideals that and ideas that that he he routinely slams and has done with his policies. So, but the interesting thing is, you know, of course, it's it's a contrast to last year when um, China's President uh, Xi Jinping gave the keynote speech. Um, I mean, just give us I mean, that in itself is intriguing that 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 he turned up to give. Um, a speech about globalization and committed the country to, you know, many of the goals of Davos, despite being a very closed uh, communist-based society. Um, can you just give us a, a, a quick rundown on what you think has changed uh, in China since then? You know, that Xi Jinping speech was such a big surprise to everybody. I mean, it's really typical for leaders around the world to go to Davos every year and promote the idea of this interconnected world. And, and you know, this year is going to be no exception. We've got Theresa May, UK Prime Minister. We've got Jack, Germany's Angela Merkel. We've got France's Macron. All of these people. But it was really striking last year to hear such an international and inclusive vision coming from a Chinese leader. And that was the Xi Jinping speech you were talking about. I mean, you know, at the time, Trump had just been elected. And there were already signs that the U.S. You know, was going to turn inwards under his leadership. Um, so it was really remarkable to see she uh, stepping in to fill that void. Now, of course, you know, he said what we all wanted to hear or what the world wanted to hear. But since then, you know, we've seen a big crackdown on capital outflows from Beijing, you know, essentially putting all these, like, big global acquirers like Amban, Dalian, H&A. You know, they're all under much tighter controls now. And then the other thing you've, we've seen, and you'll have seen a lot of this, you know, in New York where you sit, We've seen a growing suspicion of Beijing's reach into democratic countries, you know, and worries about like how China is peddling its influence. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen this play out in various ways. No, that's absolutely right. But I mean, the speech this year, though, and it's not going to be Donald Trump. He's just going there. It's going to be um, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Um, and of course, you're in, in Mumbai. You, you cover what's going on in India, including what, what Modi's been up to. Um, give us your view of how you think his keynote speech may play out. Yeah, look, I'm really super psyched that uh, Modi is going to Davos, and and India is taking its biggest ever delegation. You know, there's like over a hundred company CEOs. There's like a like a handful of ministers. There's a prime minister. There's a finance minister. It's a huge delegation. You know, I really think Modi is going to go this year, and he's going to talk about the importance of globalization, like all leaders do, but with the particular aim of attracting foreign companies to come and set up. The, a global manufacturing operation in India. And this is like Modi's whole make in India vision. You know, it's been going on for the last couple of years, but I think now he's going to really like give it a hard sell. Um, you know, it's kind of, a, it's, it's funny because Trump and Modi are both these strong men with this, uh, they both have this zero sum approach to trade. Um, Trump wants to increase manufacturing at home in the United States. Um, and Modi wants to do or really needs to do the same in India. And like these two visions, I feel, are not really entirely compatible. And, and you know, like I, I tell you why this is so important to India. I mean, it's important for India to realize this vision because, you know, manufacturing, increasing manufacturing and exports is, is really how most countries have transitioned from being low income to high income countries. And in India, there are so many poor people still. I mean, I think 20% of the population, you know, out of 1.2 billion people are still living in poverty. Yeah. You know, there's urgent, urgent need to create jobs. 
Well, yeah, that's right. We'll, we'll see what he says, obviously, next week. But you know, he's got a very big challenge, and you're right, with, with Trump also pushing for, you know, make in America, just like Modi's uh, uh, vision of make in India. Or, that's is, what I'm really right, yeah. is that, like, you know, they're both pushing this vision, but if but the stakes are higher for India. They're much higher for India. Oh, absolutely. You know, India doesn't um, create these jobs really urgently and ensure that it's aspirational young population doesn't end up as a hotbed of unrest, you know, at a time when robots are destroying jobs faster than governments yeah. can create them. So, you know, like, it's, the irony is, is that Modi may well end up having to adopt a, a Trump-like protectionist approach to his own country, just simply to shield it from the forces of globalization. So I, I just think this is, a, this is going to be a really interesting uh, make in India versus first America first kind of clash of, of vision. No, absolutely. Well, let's see how it plays out next week. And let's not leave it there on India. We must get you back on the show more often. Thank you, Una, for staying up late and taking the time to talk us through what's going to be going on uh, in Davos. Thanks very much. A pleasure. Thank you. BlackRock Chairman and Chief Executive Larry Fink issued a letter to CEOs warning executives that their firms need to make a positive contribution to society. Joining me in the studio to talk about this is Breaking News Associate Editor Tom Berkeley. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Jen. So BlackRock, just to set this up, they have $6 trillion in assets under management. Is that correct? 6.3. is a good-sized business for most other people in yeah. the industry. And they are one of the top shareholders in 400, a little more than 400, out of all the S&P uh, 500 companies. So... Basically, they're a huge shareholder. And um, what is significant about this letter that he issued? That he does every year, but what makes this one? Well, the sheer weight of mar uh, in the market of BlackRock. I mean, they okay, they're the world's largest money manager, a little over six trillion dollars. Uh, Vanguard's kind of nipping at the heel at about five billion, and together the two of them own roughly, you know, give or take, almost fifteen percent in most of the large cap uh, stocks in the U.S. And uh, you know. Have a not quite the same weight around the world, but in the U.S. market, they are really passive giants. So any position they take, they are in a, a the position to affect real change. Now, much of those assets are invested passively, either through ETFs that track indices or in index products themselves. So traditionally, BlackRock hasn't had the influence that its money suggests because it's like the the word suggests passive investing. They have to hold the stock forever. What's changed in recent years is that BlackRock and some others, State Street, for example, are trying to engage more with companies to make their voice heard more and try and influence strategy. And Larry Fink, the CEO, has been big in pushing for companies to try to act more in the long-term interest, to really set strategy for how the company is going to develop over years, not just try to make quarterly numbers, to invest more in the company rather than just putting out big buybacks. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of a the latest permutation of that campaign that's now a few years old by by BlackRock. Yeah. So I mean, they may not be able to move in and out of the stock uh, easily. Uh, obviously, they have to kind of sit there. But the thing that they do have in their pocket is is a vote, and it can be a very sizable vote for many of these uh, companies. And and to me, it seems like he is. This letter is saying like we we're not going to launch a proxy fight, but we will if we need to. And if, if, if these boards aren't going to engage with us on what's important, and, and this is kind of a squishy thing, right? Like 
the good of society? Like, what is exactly does that mean? And he kind of ticks off a few things, but um, including like these companies should explain how they're going to use their you know tax windfall from the reform bill. Um, Great, I think clearly. they should, and, and many of them are. Yeah, most and, of them are. Yeah, and so, some of some of um, some of his recommendations were uh, you know reasonable. Um, but it, it seemed to me, he's like, listen, we're going to start voting. And you've actually written about this as a prediction as well, that these passive funds are, are looking for ways to, to stir and to, to get more active and to use their muscle versus just kind of saying, typically, hey, we're just going to vote with management. Well, there were several notable examples of that in 2017. Um, BlackRock was a big um, reason why shareholders voted against management at ExxonMobil and it demanded that the company report on the risks that climate change posed to its business. Mm-hmm. A big victory by environmental groups, big victory by a lot of uh, uh, you know shareholder activists, and uh, BlackRock and some of the other passive funds went along with it. That's the kind of thing you wouldn't have expected a few years ago. Uh, they were also um, significant in the activist fight at Arconic that uh, Paul Singer of Elliott uh, Management led. They didn't vote with Singer, but they withheld their votes for management, and that really was crucial in the kind of uh, revolution that that cost uh, Klaus Kleinfeld his job and yeah. cut, turned, you know, shook up the board at, at Arconic. So they've laid down some markers that they really are willing to wield that influence. I guess what's, what strikes me about this is it's both you know, ambitious and yet, as you say, squishy, very hard to measure. It's one thing to say, I mean, climate change, um, you know, is is a real potential risk that has dollar and cents implications for governments, for companies, um, you know, for, for ordinary people. So to expect a an oil company to talk about the potential risks, I mean, if, if oil has to stay in the ground because we can't burn it anymore, that's a, a real potential risk to, to ExxonMobil. Um, it, it's reasonable to think they should make a report on that. Um, but some of the other issues he talks about, he says that, you know, the private sector is having to take over for a lot of roles previously served by governments. And he cites, uh, you know, I, I just I kind of wonder, you know, how how a company is supposed to step in there. Is that BlackRock saying, you know, companies should go back and give their employees proper pensions, should give them, you know, a high higher wage. It's unclear what his real aims are. Yeah. So, and he certainly cites that. Right. He cites the, the market the runaway market going mm-hmm. crazy. And it's the, the anxiety of a lot of people um, with, you know, stagnant wages, you know, pensions that, or not even pensions, let's say 401ks that, you know, may or na- may or may not be around by the time you retire. Um, there are a lot of worries. The fact that most companies uh, have to do your health care, for example. I mean, these are things that usually government tends to step in, right? And mm-hmm. the co- corporations are now kind of now the responsible for someone who's going to retire. And, and you know, that's that's their nest egg or whatever it is. So, um, but, but again, there, there's nothing he kind of, other than citing a few examples, he doesn't say how BlackRock specifically is going to go about choosing who they're going to target, for example, because they're, they can choose from a lot of companies, and how they're going to go about it, right? Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting that he's trying to um, bring this issue to the forefront. 
It is. And to be fair, he does say what we're really looking for is engagement. We want yeah. to be able to sit down. We want to understand what management's thinking is. We want to know what their long-term strategy is. We want to have some input into that to say, you know, you know, we think you're on the right track or we think you might want to think about a few other things. Uh, you know, they hold more than they hold in-depth conversations with over a thousand U.S. companies and, and many more around the world. And some of the other big passive funds like State Street and Vanguard are doing much the same, too. So there is a potential to use that dialogue to try to steer companies in ways that would uh, meet wider aims, that would reinforce long-term planning. But again, without clear metrics, you know, you, you can see on a couple of issues where, where you can define a clear long-term interest for a shareholder to push. But, uh, you know, if, if this becomes BlackRock trying to kind of restore some kind of uh, paternal role of companies to think about the, the wider good of of their employees and their communities. Um, I think like we can agree business. with that's, that's, <laughs> the, they're trying you. to, you're, you're, you're talking about whether we think that's a good or a bad thing. That's, that's talking about standing on end the past 30 to 40 years of uh, shareholder culture in this country. That would be a revolution. And I'm not sure he's really, um, that there is real intent to back that up. This is a, a case where, you know, if you took some of the squishier objectives of this dialogue, and you might want to wonder if, uh, if, if they are implementing it themselves. I mean, there is a field of investing, you know, economic and social responsibility where that does actually have some certain meaning, uh, and uh, BlackRock does offer some, uh, some ESG funds that emphasize environmentalism, the, uh, responsible investing, uh, good governance, and the like, uh, but that's not the overwhelming bulk of what they do, um, and it's not, it's not clear that Having such a, uh, you know, a, a lofty sounding but amorphous goal is, is really going to achieve anything. I thought, you know, when he talked last year about really emphasizing the long term, that's something that is both I think, laudable, regardless of what breaks down into the specifics of a certain company, and exactly the kind of thing that a, you know, effectively a large index investor should want to do because they're, they're going to be in for the long term and they want to make sure that they don't get burned by that approach. Yeah. Well, um, certainly that makes sense. And um, it also, I mean, I, I feel like it makes sense that w what he's saying can help the long term. You want people to uh, be able to sustain themselves <laughs> and the businesses and what have you. Um, again, but it's kind of out there and squishy and, and whatnot. Um, but I'm sure we'll be following this as proxy season unfolds. We certainly will. All right. Well, thank you, Tom. Thank you. Anthony, you are fresh from the auto show from Detroit, um, looking at all the cars and the latest models and whatnot. Yep. And you were on the floor talking to executives, getting the feel for things. What's the mood in Autoville? Well, it all depends um, which particular company you speak to. Um, now, they all, of course, put on uh, as good a show as they can. I mean, there were some, some pretty amazing events. Um, Daimler introduced its latest G-Wagen, which is this sort of, uh, what's it called? It's, a, it's a, like a four-wheeler that goes all over the place. You can take it wherever you want. I actually personally don't think it's a good-looking car, but that's just me. They sold more than two million. So they all look the same, wrong. really. Right? Well, some of them do. This one's a little bit different. But they, they had it in the, in the Michigan Theater, which is um, a now-crumbled edifice from, which was built about 100 years ago. It was mm -hmm. wonderful to get in and see uh, the remnants of it. They had flames shooting into the air, which worried me a little bit, but we had some fire wardens on hand. And they also had Arnie Schwarzenegger come out and talk about how much he, he loves the car that was uh, first built in the town where he grew up. So That's a blast that from the past. Exactly. <laughs> so, speaking of blasts in the past, yeah. Ford, for its part, 
unveiled a, a number of, of new vehicles it wants to bring out, uh, including a midsize SUV. It's trying to catch up with uh, some of its rivals. Um, but it also rolled out a brand new Mustang, which is called the Mustang Bullet, to mark the 50th anniversary of the fantastic movie Bullet starring Steve McQueen. You can tell it's one of my favourites. And they also rolled out, they found the car he drove in the movie for the fam- one of the most famous car chase scenes ever. Those were kind of the highlights yeah, for me. Yeah, that sounds very cool. Yeah. Well, all right, so speaking of Ford... They're in a bit of a trouble, right? Yeah. You were sort of looking at them, and, and particularly when you look at them vis-a-vis General Motors. What, what's going on with yeah, Ford? So, I mean, Ford, of course, was the only one of the big three in the U.S. that didn't take a government bailout. It came out of right. the crisis looking better than others. It had more small cars on offer under Alan Mulally's CEO. It seemed to do really well and, and you know, really raced ahead. Well, things have changed completely now in everything apart from um, stock valuation. So if you look at um, who's leading on autonomous vehicles, on battery evolution, um, and even on uh, you know having the, the right number of SUVs coming out and trucks to sate a market. When don't forget these SUVs are they're such higher margin businesses. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. You know, if you if you really want to make money in cars, you've got to be in SUVs. And yeah, Ford is. Um, but GM's further ahead. It's got new lineups coming next year. And GM said on Tuesday, look, you know, this year earnings are going to be flat. Next year, this SUV is going to just really be brilliant for us from our earnings. And also, they've got a great plan, if it works, for autonomous vehicles. They're going to have some on the road um, as robo-taxis starting next year in certain cities. That's not going to be a big money spinner just yet, but they seem to be ahead of the they're game. Prepping, they're prepping for the long Ford, term. Ford, on the other hand, yeah. is behind uh, on that. It's, it's saying 2021 for its first uh, autonomous vehicles. It's got a somewhat amorphous plan to try and make cities more livable by introducing technology that all comers from governments to other car makers to local businesses can use. Um, sounds interesting, but I don't know whether financials uh, work on that just yet. Um, but also, it said on Tuesday, in stark contrast to GM, this year, 2017, we're probably going to miss estimates. 2018 not looking good and the cost cuts that we've got coming through won't really take effect until 2020. So if you're sitting there looking at the stock market, you think you're trading eight times this year's earnings. GM's trading at 7.4. This makes no sense. Yeah, it makes no sense. So what's going on? Well, I think it's really just that a hangover from the past. I think it also is in part to do with, I think, with with GM, right? Uh, And GM was such a basket case going into and out of the crisis. Yeah. Only really in the past two years has it shown how, how much it has transformed itself. I think investors have given it a degree of credit. The stock's up about 30 40% over the past year, whereas Ford's up uh, you know, barely. And you know, they've got a stable management. Ford had to um, decide to oust its uh, chief executive, uh, Mark Fields, last year. Now it's run by Jim Hackett. It's quite funny. He's a very good, very smart guy from the world of tech. But you know, he sits there. He's in his uh, late 50s, early 60s, wearing his like, granddad cardigan. And you think, wow, this guy's running a company that's trying to prove it's, it's, it's tech savvy. <laughs> and I think he probably is. It's just a funny visual. Yeah, right. Um, so I think a lot of it is just a hangover. So I think you know, GM, frankly, ought to be trading at a higher multiple. Um, it seems to be on a much better path uh, than Ford. In fact, Ford is kind of giving BMW and Daimler a run for their money, even though BMW and Daimler make luxury cars and do a, a you know and, and make more money uh, as a as a as a percentage of, of their revenue. So it is it is a very strange affair that's been going on now for far too long. And I think after this week's auto show, where you see a lot of catch up from Ford, you know, they were talking about doubling their. Um, investment in more than doubling their investment in electric batteries to 11 billion over the next five years. They're catching up on AV. 
uh, autom autonomous vehicles. And they're having some some uh, troubles with their earnings. Again, it's not huge troubles. It's not going to overdo it. We're not looking at crisis times here. It's just they're not hitting estimates. And they're normally pretty good at giving an indication of where they're going. So um, I think after what's happened the past few days, investors getting the message, the stock was down, but it's got to go a lot further down or GM's got to go a lot further up uh, to get rid of this mismatch. All right, we'll leave it at that. Thanks, Anthony. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Una Galani and Tom Berkeley, and hats off to our producers, Ross Shoulder, Andrew D'Antonio, Amanda Panzera, Ryan Warner, and Freddie Joyner. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. And don't forget to tune in for another show next week.